Good morning. Happy New Year. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the year that you just brought us through and the blessings you provided. We uh, look forward to the 2016 year and we ask that your spirit will bless us and direct us in the paths you'd have us go. May we um, be available to fulfill your purposes and lighting the world for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And just uh, some announcements as we get going. I thought maybe I would just real briefly kind of overview kind of the way the Lord blessed us in 2015. In 2015, our ministry conducted um, over 30 seminars in various denominational and community churches, universities, healthcare organizations in the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. We we were featured on three television programs and one radio program this year. And I really don't have the exact numbers, so I'm probably putting this a little ballparking at low. It might be significantly higher. But we distributed over 40,000 books and 40,000 DVD sets, and this doesn't account what we did in Australia and South Africa. We launched the e-version of, e-version of the Remedy, the print version of the Journal of the Watcher, had an exhibit at two conventions, the GC and the AACC, uh, where we distributed materials. Uh, we have now over 5,890 likes on our Facebook page, which is up 350 from the beginning of the year. Uh, we produced and broadcasted 51 Bible study classes over the, and as I went to the, um, the uh, YouTube We've had over 180,000 people watch them, or 180,000 views. So it's not necessarily 180,000 people, but 100,000 views, which uh, as over the trend of this year, we've been increasing each week, and we're averaging over 2,000, 2,500 people watching each week now. And despite the massive expense which we incurred to give away all this stuff this year, uh, at the end of the year, our finances are actually stronger than they were at the beginning of the year. So the Lord has really blessed us this year. I received this email this week. Regarding the remedy. He says, I would like to tell you how much I've been enjoying this version. I have been so frustrated with versions that do not talk in our language. I frustratedly said to my husband, how am I supposed to understand this stuff? Then along comes this, and I love it. Have been an Adventist my entire life in 53, grown kids who we dragged to church as all their little lives, doing what we thought was best to appease an angry God at the time. Had a life crash and thought I would never stop crying. Had left God, uh, God had left God because he just seemed like another complication I could not deal with. While crying one night in my living room floor, in the wee hours of the morning, either Jesus or an angel, someone came to me in a sweet, calm voice that was not outward, but inward. Uh, Don't know quite how to explain it, but I most definitely heard it say, what about Jesus? I stopped my crying and lifted my head off the floor. I said, Lord, is that you? I don't honestly know how to explain this, but my whole heart turned away from my troubles and went out to him. And I said, and I prayed, Lord, please show me who you are. And in short, he did. I was surprised at the things he was showing me in, in my armchair at home. I would often say to him, how could this be? Lord, if I am wrong, please show me. He just kept sweetly, gently leading me along. He opened up to me his character, just me and him. I would ask him, how could this be? How could the church not know this? I kept on following, although sometimes uh, weak need, I must admit. Then finally, I met someone, a couple of people actually, a family who was teaching what God alone was showing me. I heard them with my ears open. They along, and then along came another and another. I praised God. Now I have the remedy. It is perfectly what God was showing me alone in my armchair at home. All this to say, thank you, brother. Super thanks to you bunches, your sister and the living God. And then I received this email this week. It's a shorter one. I have listened to the first lesson of the new quarter, which is we did two weeks ago here. 
and find your explanation compelling. Your teaching is the lesson uh, of the lesson is the first one I listen to every week. I study and make notes and daily lessons to myself and usually also listen to one or two other teachers who teach the same lesson. At the same time, I find your bashing of those who disagree with you within the denomination disturbing. The comments you made about a nearby educational institute in the first lesson, I thought, were those of airing dirty laundry. It makes me reluctant to share your teachings with non-Adventist friends. Thank you for reading my comments and concerns. And when I got this, I had to do some reflection. And I thought about it, and I thought, and prayer prayed about it. And I realized that um, sometimes little things leak out around the edge, and it leaks out around the edge because I see in certain places things that I don't like in me. And each one of us who have accepted Jesus have good, and still areas we're trying to overcome. And sometimes when I uh, said some criticizing comments, I realized those organizations are also a mixture of God's grace filled with human weakness. And uh, I hope you guys will be patient with me as I'm still working out some of the difficulties and weaknesses in, in my character. So, in last week's lesson, we ended right before we got to the point that I think is worthy of spending a little time with. If you go back to last week's lesson, the fourth paragraph in Thursday's lesson, in lesson two, it states these words. There had to be another way to ensure the future of the human race. So God provided an animal sacrifice to point to the Savior. Genesis 3.21. That's a quote from the lesson. You can check it. Thursday's lesson, I think it's page 19. Did anything strike you as questionable about this? This almost sounds reasonable. In fact, it's so close to being right that most Christians accept it without question. The authors even cite a Bible text to support the idea that God provided an animal sacrifice. But let's check the scriptures for ourselves and see what it actually says. Their scripture, quote, Genesis 3.21, here's from the scripture. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Does this text say anything about God sacrificing an animal? No. Which, which is it harder to do, create a living animal or create the skin of an animal? We can create faux skins, can't we? Don't we do it all the time? Can we create a living animal? So which is harder to do? If one wants to believe God sacrificed an animal here, one has to actually project that idea into the text because it's not there. Now, was God incapable of having the author of Genesis write God sacrificed an animal and from the sacrificed animal he formed skins and gave them that? Was he incapable of having him write that? Do you think when God has the scriptures written he's negligent or careless about the words he chooses in the scripture? Do you think maybe it's purposeful that it doesn't actually say God sacrificed an animal? It just says he provided a skin. If we want to project things into the text, it actually doesn't even say it was an animal skin. It just said providing his skin. I mean, it could have been an angel skin or a human skin. I'm not saying it was. I'm only pointing out, I'm only pointing out the dangers we get into when we project things into the text that aren't there. Because the word for skin is the same word used for human skin as, as animal skin throughout the Bible. Yes. In support of your view, I've read in a magazine that it's now possible to create hamburger meat without an animal. In other words, 
genetics has developed so well that it's possible. Without killing an animal. Without, yes, without killing an animal. In other words, the animal, they can continue to grow more and more meat for human consumption. So once you, so you take a sample of a living tissue without killing the animal, and from that living tissue, then you can actually, in a, in a lab, grow more of the tissue. And it's being done according to the magazine article I read. Yeah. So the meat you might eat at the restaurant might never have come from... Oh, that would be an interesting dilemma then for those who are, we don't want to kill animals. Now we're not. You can eat the meat without killing an animal. Animals are actually growing on trees now. (laughs) (laughs) Petri dish. Yeah, interesting. Thank you for sharing that. But see, the the point being, now now let's let's unpack this. Why would the authors and so many Christians, this this is almost universally accepted, that this text means God killed an animal here. Why would, so, why would the authors of so many Christians assume God killed an animal in order to provide Adam and Eve skins? Why? Because that's how we do it. They believe God is the source of life and death. Okay, so both, the question, both are correct. Because number one, we have a hard time conceiving of God being bigger, broader, and, and more amazing than we are. We constantly bring him down to do things the way we would do them. Okay? But what you said also is, and, and, how do, and how do we operate? We operate in an imperialistic imposed law system of rules, got to punish and, and, and inflict punishments, and, and thus we have this construct that God works just like us, and he's the source of not only life, but he's the source of death. They're both true. You think about the disconnect of, of a God who just spoke our entire solar system into existence with a word, and, and yet he couldn't do that with animal scans? Come on, people. Right. So this is all based on this idea that God operates under Satan's construct of law, a system of rules one has to impose and then must inflict death. And then Jesus came in order to take that penalty and God must punish the sin in Christ and therefore the animal symbolic represents Christ so God had to execute Christ so God had to kill the animal. I mean, it all kind of goes together, but it's often not stated so overtly because to state it overtly, you go, oh, you get uncomfortable with it, don't you? Some part of you is going, wait a second. That's why they kind of do it all euphemistically. But isn't this kind of the foundation of propitiation and penal substitution model? Yes. This is when he is telling them there is a Savior, he's promising rescue, and to attach appeasement of God and the death of an innocent... Right, you know what I mean. Right? Yeah, this this is the exactly they project this whole theory right back into this story. But I don't think it's an accident at all that the Bible describes God providing skins for them without. God sacrificing an animal. I don't think that's an accident. Think through that implication from let your mind go down. Well, what would that represent? What would that symbolize? God provided a, a, a covering for them without God killing. Did Christ kill when he came? Does Christ provide a covering of his perfect righteousness? Who's described as the murderer from the beginning? Satan. Satan is the one who kills, not God. Yes, God provided the, the covering through Jesus Christ, but God did it without God killing. And I think this is perfect symbolism, and I think the Bible teaches this, but we have completely corrupted the way we read it, and we project in this other thing, and then put God in the role of being the killer. I actually had the thought in my mind, I actually believe that's where the sacrificial system began. That was what was in my mind. Yeah, And so... So thank you for sharing that. So how deeply embedded are these assumptions that we have into our thinking that we don't even see them? We just read the scripture and it automatically gets filtered through this lens and we read it and it's not even saying that at all. We have to really work to get these embedded assumptions out, not only of our own minds, but out of Christianity. Now, yes, you had a comment? Um, 
You said he didn't kill. I was wondering about the fish that he fed the disciples. We're, we're not there. We're in the Garden of Eden, and that's a completely different discussion. Okay? <laughs> okay? But just like your wife said, how, how, how do, you, do, we, do we see a fishing rod and a net with Jesus out there? Or, or when he multiplied the fishes. Yes, and, and, were those, yeah. and were those fishes alive when Jesus got them? They probably weren't. They were not alive. Yeah. No, so again, we don't find ever that Jesus was killing the animals, okay? Pardon? Yeah. Yes, I got you, but, but uh, we don't find that Jesus was killing, that he did feed him the fish, but what was the source of the fish? We don't know. So back to this thing in Eden, in, in, in um, this providing them the skins, you find the same argument being made again and again that he had to kill an animal, but the Bible does not actually say that. Yes? Well, fruits also have skins, and I always, for whatever reason, every time I read that verse, I thought he clothed them with leaves with plants, you know, skins of plants, and so So I would like to go to the, to the Hebrew and analyze what it really means. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't looked to see if that word skins is different for a plant skin, like a banana peel, than a, an animal skin, but I do know it's the same word for animals and human skin. But I don't know if it applies to the other or, or, or not. Um, so for those of you who, have, who like everything I said... And I know it's nobody in this room that some of, some, some, we have some online listeners that, that I know struggle to, to assimilate the data and evidence and they like it, but they just quite can't lock it down to a firm belief without an Ella White statement to confirm it. <laughs> so I'm going to read an Ella White statement. Notice this, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. Regarding the first animal sacrifice. The sacrificial offerings were ordained by God to be to man a perpetual reminder of the penitential acknowledgement of his sin and a confession of his faith in the promised Redeemer. They were intended to impress upon the fallen race the solemn truth that it was sin that caused death. If we don't any farther, can you think already in your mind, Bible texts are popping up. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. He who sows to the carnal nature, from that nature will reap destruction. In other words, sin is the source of death, not God. Keep going in the quote. To Adam, the offering of the first sacrifice was a most painful ceremony. His hand must be raised to take life. Of the first sacrifice, whose hand must be raised? Adams, which only God could give. It was the first time he had ever witnessed death, and he knew that had he been obedient to God, there would have been no death of man or beast. As he slew the innocent victim, he trembled at the thought that his sin must shed the blood of the spotless Lamb of God. So we already went through the evidence of Scripture and what's not stated there and the reasons why it's not stated there and a better way to understand that God did not slay an animal to provide them skins. And now we have an Ellen White quote for those who value her as a resource that states the very first animal sacrifice was at Adam's hands, not God's hands. I think it's huge. I encourage you, when you hear this idea that God sacrificed an animal to provide a skin, that you protest it. 
that you do it graciously and gently, but you protest it out there when you're in a class somewhere. And someone you pro- because it's not something that is just a side issue. The entire great controversy is boiled down in here. We move from God being the source of life who provides the free um, remedy in Jesus Christ who was slain for, for our, our, our sin and our condition and our healing, but not at God's hands. And we move away immediately to this idea that God in his justice must take life. And we misrepresent the whole thing. It all cascades downhill from there. So let's go to Sabbath's lesson for this week. Global Rebellion and the Patriarchs. The lesson makes a very bold and accurate statement in in paragraph 3. It says this. Sin not only distorts creation, it destroys it. Do you hear that? What the lesson stated? Yeah, this statement is based on design law. And it's absolutely right. It's right by our own observations and experiences. You see that sin is destructive. It's right by science. Deviate from design law, you you die, you destroy. And it's right by scripture. All three threads of evidence confirm that, in fact, sin destroys. It stands in contrast to the idea that we just read from last week's lesson, that God is the one who sacrificed the animal. So if sin is the source of death, then why do so many teach God is the source of destruction and death? Because they believed the lies, they have that assumption already in their head. This is how justice works. Justice works like what we do. And when, when somebody does wrong, well, we have to punish them. Because if we don't punish them, then it's not fair. And we have to be fair. And God is fair, so when somebody does wrong, God has to punish them. And we know the punishment for sin is death, so God has to kill. And it's all based on believing God runs the universe like sinful beings run a planet. Rather than seeing him as the creator, designer, and builder of reality, and his laws are the protocols upon which reality function. These primary arguments that that lead to this are themes of justice, fairness, and sovereignty. And and, and, and people who hold this view have misunderstanding of what justice looks like in God's government. Remember we went through that in our our, um, seminar on God in the Church seminar and also on God in Your Brain seminar. God's justice, in biblical justice, is always seeking that which is right to heal and restore to deliver the oppressed, not to punish the oppressor. This is the theme through all scripture. God is seeking to deliver. You see, justice, do justice to them in the morning. Deliver those who are oppressed. Do right by the widows and the orphans. All through scripture, you see it over and over. This is what justice looks like. And if you walked in on somebody who just was hanging themselves, remember the example, they they put a noose around the neck, they just kicked the, the chair out from under them, they are now breaking the law of respiration. They are a lawbreaker. A design lawbreaker. What would justice require you to do? If you want to do what's just, what's right, do you get out a belt and beat them for breaking the law? You must punish them. They're breaking the law. You must punish them. Do you have a tribunal? Do you call in witnesses? Do you have a, a verdict and then pronounce a sentence? Do you seek to deliver and to restore them back into harmony? Lift them up, pull the noose off around their neck, and put them back in harmony. This is God's justice. The whole human race is out of harmony. We're dead in our trespass and sin. And God, through Christ, is working to restore us back to do what's right, to put us back in harmony with eternal life. Sunday's lesson, Cain and Abel. What questions or concerns come to mind when you think of this story? Have you ever thought, why did Cain do what he did? I mean, here we are, first generation. Garden of Eden, as I understand it, if you value Ellen White's insights, was still on the earth at the time. Angels, in fact, the Bible talks about the angels with the flaming swords that were still there barring the way to the tree of life so they could see it, but they couldn't access it. 
You remember this? They've got Adam and Eve to tell them their first-hand account of their journeying and walking with God in Eden before sin. What would cause the first child of Adam and Eve to become a murderer and turn against Abel? What, what do you think? Was, was Cain tender towards God or hardened against God? Cain. Tender toward God or hardened? From the biblical story, how does he respond? He was hardened. Yes. Is it possible that Cain came to worship his sacrifice with an assumption about God, operating in his mind, a belief about God that was false? What did Cain do for a living? He was a farmer. And what happened to the ground after sin? It was cursed. Genesis three seventeen to nineteen. Cursed is the ground because of you. Though painful toil uh, through painful toil you eat of it all the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground from which you were taken, for dust you are and dust you will return. Did Cain understand this statement by God? That was God speaking, by the way. As many do today, God is an inflictor of curses. God is using his power to make our lives harder. God is laying a burden on our shoulders. Yes, Adam and Eve, my parents disobeyed, and God cursed them for it. And therefore, Cain views God as an untrustworthy being, a powerful being to be sure, but one who is not worthy of his trust, because if you don't do what he says, he'll punish you. Coercive pressure. If you don't think that leads to rebellion, try it on your spouse. Sweetie, I love you. But if you don't love me while you're sleeping, I will, I will light you on fire. I will. It's only because I love you that I, do, I torture you this way. Seriously, if, if you were to threaten your spouse in any way, I will take your checkbook from you. If, you. if you go to the grocery store and spend more than your allowed amount, I've given you $50. If you spend 51 you lose your checkbook for the month. Try that on your spouse. See what happens. I promise you rebellion will be instilled. It's a, it's a law, a design law of, of how God constructed reality. Is it possible Cain rebelled because he believed the lie, he, believed, he misinterpreted what's happening, and believed Satan's lie that God is a source of curses, as many Christians teach today? Well, this is first Spirit of Prophecy, page 54. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam, were very unlike in character. Abel feared God. Cain cherished rebellious feelings and murmured against God because of the curse pronounced upon Adam and Eve, Adam, and because the ground was cursed for his sin. So something about the curse, Cain didn't didn't sit well with Cain. Those who oppose what we teach in this class hold the same view. When I was at the GC, there was two people that were pro- that were the most prominent in working the crowd against our ministry. One went around handing out cards, telling him to, that uh, I teach heresy and go to a website where he posted a big blog about it. Another came back several times to have dialogue. I had dialogue with both of them. And both of them used examples from Genesis where God, pun- God punished the sin because after Eden, he cursed the ground. He threw them out of the garden. He, he inflicted this on them as punishment. This is what they said. This is how rebellion began in heaven by Satan getting angels to believe that if you step out of line, God will use his power to punish you. But if you understand design law, you understand that God 
in saying cursed is the ground did not inflict anything. He simply diagnosed and pronounced the reality of earth's condition now infected with Satan's principles. If you're struggling with that, here's an Ellen White quote for you. Second Celestial Messages 288. Christ never planted the seeds of death in the system. Satan planted these seeds when he tempted Adam to eat of the tree of knowledge, which meant disobedience to God. Not one noxious plant was placed in the Lord's great garden, but after Adam and Eve sinned, poisonous herbs sprang up. In the parable of the sower, the question was asked, the master, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? From where then has the tares come? The master answered, an enemy has done this. All tares are sown by the evil one. Every noxious herb is of his sowing, and by his ingenious methods of amalgamation, he has corrupted the earth with his tares. God did not curse the ground. But if you have this view, God is the source of curses. God is, he'll punish you if you step out of line. This does not lead to love and trust. It leads to rebellion. I'm going to suggest that it was this distortion in, Satan, in Cain's mind that hardened his heart against God. How many religious people through history, even today, are caught in the same trap? Same trap. Here's another quote from one of the founders of our church. This is out of Signs of the Times, December 23, 1886. These two brothers, Cain and Abel, represent the whole human family. They were both tested on the point of obedience, and all would be tested as and all would be tested as they were. Abel bore the proving of God. He revealed the gold of a righteous character, the principles of true godliness. But Cain's rebellion had not a good foundation. It rested upon human merit. He brought to God something in which he had a personal interest, the fruits of the ground, which had been cultivated by his toil, and he presented his offering as a favor done to God, through which he expected to secure the divine approval. Do you notice Cain has a works-oriented religion? Because he didn't trust God. This is why. We must pay him. We must bribe him. We must do something for him. He's not trustworthy. He doesn't have good intentions in his heart naturally. We must bring something to him that will influence him to look upon us favorably. Continuing on with the same article. In the case of Cain and Abel, we have a type of two classes that will exist in the world to the close of time. And this type is worthy of close study. There is a marked difference in the characters of the two brothers, and the same difference is seen in the human family today. Cain represents those who carry out the principles and works of Satan by worshiping God in a way of their own choosing. Notice. She didn't say, carry out the works of Satan by rejecting God and becoming agnostics and atheists and not believing in God. She says, carry out the works of Satan by worshiping God in a way of their own choosing. These are worshiping people. These are religious people. We miss this. I think one of Satan's strategies is to, to look at the people who have rejected God and, and then to criticize them and throw stones. But you will find many of the people who have rejected God have rejected Satan's distortion about God. And they've actually moved closer to God by rejecting that lie than had they stayed and continued to worship in a corrupt system. Yes. I always got in the, lesson, in the story of Cain and Abel 
and I'm wondering how many others did, the message that it was because Cain brought the wrong gift to God. Yes, yes, this is what's, because why? Because it's through that lens of, I'm very, and we're going to get to this when we get to Jacob, because we're going to talk about this idea, how many, God is very particular. He gives you his exact descriptions of what you must do. If you deviate from that like Cain did, then you must be punished like Cain was. We're going to come to that when we get to Jacob in our lesson today, because, because Jacob, if you remember how Jacob handled his life, he doesn't exactly follow God's guidance and instructions for most of his early years, but God didn't punish him for it. So it's works-oriented. If you don't do it just right, the right thing... Yep, exactly. Continuing on with the quote. Like the leader whom they follow, which is Satan, who she's talking about here, they are willing to render partial obedience, but not entire submission to God. Man, in the pride of his heart, would like to believe that he can confer some favor upon God, that our Heavenly Father may be the receiver and not always the giver. But God will not be bribed. Notice how understanding design law, how reality functions. God is the source, the source of all good, all righteous, all life, all energy, all matter, all time, all space. God is the source. He's constantly giving of himself. It flows outward from God. We receive the blessings of everything. The air we breathe is because God created air. The water we drink is because God created water. The life that we have is because God has created us to live. And everything then flows back to God in praise and adoration and, and, and loving acceptance and so forth and so on. But this view that Satan has is that actually we can confer some favor on God, that he becomes the receiver, that we have to give him something, but God will not be bribed. What about the theology you were raised with? Yes, we were taught we have nothing in ourselves that we can come to God and merit his, his mercy and grace because of all of our righteousness is filthy rags. But I know there is something we can go to God and it will please him and it will influence his, his angry wrath to be turned aside. He won't look at us with rage. Instead, he will be gracious to us. I know we can offer him the blood of his son. So when he sends his son to us, all we have to do to get in God's good graces if we really want to be in God's good graces, is we have to kill his son. And if we kill his son, then he'll be happy with us. This is penal substitution theology. We have nothing to give, so we send a son, we kill a son, offer him his perfect son's blood, now he's appeased, his anger is turned away, his wrath has been satisfied. Does any part of you go, wait a second, that is just crazy talk? Yes, because it's based on the human law construct. It's not based on design law. We are dead in our trespass and sin. We need to be set right. We need to be restored. We need to have the law written in our heart and mind. We need to be recreated in the inner man. We need to be won back to trust. The work of salvation is changing sinners, not changing God. The Cain class of worshipers, finishing this quote, includes by far the largest number for every false religion that has ever been invented has been based on the Cain principle. Yes. There's an allusion to the fact that Eve was so happy about her first son's birth, okay, in, in Monday or Sunday's lesson here. So obviously she, you know, made him believe that he was something special and that he had a special work to do. And naturally, 
any parent or anybody is going to tell you, tell their, tell someone that they need to bring their best to God. So, in other words, Cain, I'm sure, felt that he was bringing his best to God, according to his mother's, you know, admonitions and and probably his father's too. And don't you think that there's there's a, a very close analogy to that in feeling that you have something to bring to God, especially once you know you've cleaned it up? Yeah, I think it goes right back to what we were just saying, that Cain actually thought God would be grateful to him. I've, I've worked so hard. I've worked these fields. I've produced these fruits. I'm, I'm bringing it to you, Lord. And, and after the curse you put on it, look at the amazing fruit that I've, I was able to bring forth after the, the curse you, you put it put here. You should be very thankful I worked so hard in this field for you. Yeah. We were talking this morning, Joel and I, about today is supposed to be like a, a day of prayer, uh, church-wide, NAD, day of prayer. <clears throat> we talked about what does that mean? I really believe that often we approach God with the intent of changing Him. If we get together, if we pray, if we have a vigil, if we are really sincere, then we'll get Him talked over to what we're really pushing for. And really, we need to come to Him as asking Him to change us. And that's the same thing with Cain. Well said. He came trying to say, okay, God, look, this is good, right? And God really wanted to change His heart. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the way things are expressed. You know, we, the lesson, use the phraseology, we rest secure on the promises of God. Do we rest secure on the promises of God? Or do we rest secure on the God who made promises? Do we rest secure on the blood of the Lamb or the Lamb who shed His blood? Do we rest secure on the righteousness, the, right, the robe of Christ's righteousness or Christ who is righteous? And you say, I'm playing word games. No. The first way you say it makes those things into commodities that we can use in our vending machine. We can go to God with the promise. I've seen this happen over and over. God, you've promised. I'm claiming the promise, God. Uh, you've written it. You've promised it. Now you must do it. It's almost like we use the promises of God like pagan cult worshipers use their incantations. If I say the incantation in the right way, I can control the spirit. If I say the promise in the right way, God has to do what I want him to do. Well, if we have more numbers saying the incantation. Yeah, we have to put our prayer, prayer list out and get more and more people, then he'll really be influenced to do what we want. So I think there's a... Now, I'm not diminishing the promises of God by any means. No, they're important to us. We, we, we gain peace and strength from the promises of God. We can have security. But the promises is for our confidence in him, not to turn him around on him and put him in the vending machine of our prayers and say, God, you promised, now you've got to do it. The lesson is moving into Monday's lesson into the flood. We're looking at a lot of the Old Testament early stuff. And uh, I went back and I thought I would read a, uh, in a, in a um, commentary on the flood experience written in the book, The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 1. And there's some amazing insights for those who haven't read this in a long time. So first couple of paragraphs I'll read, and then we're going to pause as we go through and make some comments as we read here. The curse did not change at once the appearance of the earth. It was still rich in the bounty God had provided for it. There were gold and silver in abundance. Imagine where we find gold and silver today. Evidently, prior to the flood, it was just out everywhere. I actually have this vision that uh, God created his earth, and he used gold and silver and precious jewels and gems as uh, ways to decorate the earth like a woman does her, you know, um, accessorizes, okay? And uh, so you might, instead of having rivers and waterfalls with rocks and, and mud, you might have a river with diamonds and platinum and, and sapphires and rubies as, as the bottom of the river, and the water flows over it, imagining a river and a waterfall done in all this kind of way. Really kind of cool and beautiful. I, I think that maybe some of these things were going on because this description, they were, they were out in abundance. 
The race of, of men living was of very great stature and possessed wonderful strength. The trees were vastly large and far surpassing in beauty and perfect proportions, anything mortals can now look upon. The wood of these trees was of fine grain and hard substance, in this respect, more like stone. So sometimes when you pick up some petrified wood, perhaps it is actually a piece of wood that was existence before the flood. It wasn't actually petrified. It was the way the wood was before the flood, if you believe this account. It requires much more, it required much more time and labor, even of that powerful race to repair the timber for building, than it requires in the degenerate age, in this degenerate age, to repair trees that are now growing upon the earth, even with the present weaker strength men now possess. These trees were of great durability and would not know decay for many years. The people used the gold, silver, precious stones, and choice wood in building houses for themselves, each striving to excel the other. They beautified and adorned their houses and lands with the most ingenious works and provoked God by their wicked deeds. They, performed, they formed images to worship and taught their children to regard these pieces of workmanship made with their own hands as gods and to worship them. They did not choose to think of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and rendered no grateful thanks to him who had provided them all the things that they possessed. They even denied the existence of the God of heaven and gloried in and worshipped the works of their own hand. They corrupted themselves with those things which God had placed upon the earth for man's benefit. They prepared for themselves beautiful walks overhung with fruit trees in every description under these majestic and lovely trees with their widespread branches, which were green from the commencement of the year till its close. They placed, notice, this idea that there was no fall, there was no seasons in which leaves fell off and died and turned brown. This is what the illusion here is. They were green from the opening of the season till its close. Um, Somehow the earth operated differently before the flood than it did after the flood. Um, they placed their idols to worship. Whole groves, uh, because of the, sh- of the shelter of the branches, were dedicated to their idols. Instead of doing justice to their neighbors, what is justice to their neighbors? Well, just notice what injustice looks like. They carried out their unlawful wishes. They had a plurality of wives, which was contrary to God's wise arrangement. In other words, breaking design. We're out harmony with design. It's not how things were designed to run. In the beginning, God gave Adam one wife, showing to all showing to all who should live upon the earth his order and law in that respect. The transgression and fall of Adam and Eve brought sin and wretchedness upon the human race, and man followed his own carnal nature and desires and changed God's order. The more men multiplied wives to themselves, the more they increased in wickedness and unhappiness. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, that's not a thing against women. I didn't hear that. Think about what happens to the woman, woman who's uh, the, third, the second wife, the third wife, the fourth wife. Think about all those women in those relationships. I mean, think about the, the infection of selfishness, the inbreeding and the cross and the competition. And the, and the, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it, it, the, it's a thing against the design and the structure. It's not against women. Okay? I guarantee you. Turn it around. If it was the other way, women had multiple husbands. Guys, think about how happy you'd be in that arrangement. You wouldn't be. There'd be lots of competition, backbiting, sniping, fighting, manipulations, and just kind of, you know, always looking for self. The survival of the fittest and instinct just grows in a situation like this. So it's not a thing against women. If anyone chose to take the wives or cattle or anything belonging to his neighbor, he did not regard justice or right, but if he could prevail over his neighbor by reason of strength or by putting him to death, he did so and exulted in his deeds of violence. They loved to destroy the lives of animals. They used them for food, and this increased their ferocity and violence and caused them to look upon the blood of human beings with astonishing indifference. 
It's one of the things we look for today. Kids that are cruel to animals, it's a major risk factor to become an antisocial um, human being, a criminal, basically. Somebody who will exploit and take advantage of others. You're cruel to animals, you lose a sensitive conscience, and you be cruel to people. But if there was one sin above others, above another, which called for the destruction of the race by flood, pause, what do you think this is going to be? One sin above the others, it was the base crime, base crime. Now listen to this words, base crime. When you hear the word crime, what normally comes to mind? Breaking some rule, some, some law, right? Notice what she describes here. It's a crime against design. It's not a crime against a, a written rule. Notice what's described. The base crime of amalgamation of man and beast, which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. He would not... Notice, is this punishment for sin? Notice, notice the description here. He would not suffer them to live out the days of their natural life, which would be hundreds of years. Why would he not suffer them to do this? They are now debasing themselves with amalgamations of man and beast. What's going to happen? More grace, more kindness, more love, more gentleness, more mercy, more exploitation, more murder, more... Remember what Genesis 6 describes them as what? Violent and violent all the time. This is what they become. This is not a happy home. This is not a place any of you would want to live. This is not a home of security and order. Talk about the terroristic threats we have today. Imagine living in a place like that. Some argue that the flood was a wrathful act to punish. I think it was a therapeutic intervention to reduce suffering and pain and, as you know, keep open the avenue for Messiah to come. Because when the flood finally broke upon the earth, how many righteous men were left on the earth? According to Scripture, there was one. If Satan can, can knock that guy off, there's nobody left on earth through whom Messiah can come. Satan prevents the Messiah. So God acts therapeutically to keep open the avenue for the Messiah and to reduce suffering and pain. Let's keep going with the quote. It was only a few generations back when Adam had access to the tree which would, per, which would prolong life. After his disobedience, he was not suffered to eat of the tree of life and perpetuate a life of sin. Why was man barred from the tree? Those same people who criticized us said it was punishment for sin. Not so here. It was an act of mercy to limit the length of time people would suffer in sin. You will not suffer perpetually in sin. Isn't this good? You will not suffer perpetually in sin. There's a text in Genesis 6... um... Genesis 6, 6, where it says, and this is just before the flood, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Yeah. I mean, we overlook that verse. We think, oh, he's coming in. Ah, but all the cries and all the agony of all the people who are uh, being damaged, um, you know, being terrorized. Any parent who's had a child go into a, fit of rage, and maybe in that fit of rage or, or intoxication or abuse of some substance, begin assaulting and beating and hurting their other children, is your heart not grieved? He's looking down on this and it, it just tears his heart out. These are his children. He loves them all. 
He doesn't love just the good ones. Do you love just your children when they obey? When they just, I don't love you anymore. You didn't make me, I don't love you. Now there are actually, I have patients who come to see me whose parents actually did function this way. It was conditional love. They only got some act of love or mercy or grace from their parent when they did what the parent wanted. Otherwise, that was a condemnation and rejection from the parent. It's very destructive. Very destructive to be under a system where you feel you're only loved if you do what your parent wants you to do. No, we need to be loved for who we are, and then our parents need to educate us that we want to do what's right because it's healthy and it brings healing and peace and joy. And when we deviate from what's right, it's actually damaging and destructive and causes us pain and suffering. But if you decide to go that way, if you decide to smoke cigarettes, I'll love you just as much, but you're going to destroy your health. I'm not going to hate you. I'll love you, but, but you won't be happy. You decide to cheat on your spouse. I'm going to still love you, son, if you cheat on your spouse. But you won't be happy. You'll be tormented. You won't sleep at night. You'll live in anxiety and stress and worry and fret. I'll love you, but you're destroying your soul. Many people don't get this. I know there are... We had a conversation the other night with some friends from the class, and they have in-laws that don't get this. They, they, their kids don't do what they want. They send the message, you can't come to our home until you start doing what we... Adult kids, you can't come to our home until you start doing the way we think you should do. We, we won't love you. In order for man to possess an endless... Oh, so the, the idea... The, the, oh, I want to mention also why... Oh, yeah. In order for man to possess an endless life, he must continue to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Deprived of that life, he would gradually wear out. Why would man die without access to the tree of life? Entropy. Second law of thermodynamics. Without energy being put in to, to keep a system from decaying, without the connection to the source of life, then we slowly decay and die. This would not have prevented beheading. The tree of life would not prevent beheading. It would not prevent... Uh, an atomic bomb from incinerating and vaporizing molecules and destroying life. People could have still, uh, Cain could have still smashed Abel's head with a rock, even if they had access to the tree of life. It wouldn't have prevented that. This prevented the slow, gradual wearing out, aging. It prevented aging. That's what it prevented. It's important to recognize that. This is why the tree of life was barred to them. Because imagine if we had the proverbial fountain of youth available on earth where there's some, some source, a fruit, a, a, a cup of water, a, a fountain somewhere, that if you had access to it, it stopped aging. It promoted perfect physical health. Who would control it in this world today? The good, righteous, kind people who never force and coerce people? Or the most wicked and powerful and exploited people of all? And then who would live? And what the righteousness would be crushed out of the earth by the wicked who control it. This is why this is not an act of punishment as those who oppose the sin. This is an act of mercy to remove the tree of life from the earth. Noah and his family were not alone in fearing and obeying God, but Noah was the most pious and holy of, of any man on the earth and was one of one whose life God preserved to carry out his will in building the ark and warning the world of the coming doom. Methuselah, the grandfather of Noah, lived until the very year of the flood. And there were others who believed the preaching of Noah and aided him in building the ark who died before the flood of waters came upon the earth. Noah, by his preaching and example in building the ark, condemned the world. God gave all who chose an opportunity to repent and turn to him. Is this, do we believe this to be true? That when Noah was preaching for 120 years, that every person on earth was given an opportunity to believe and repent. Do we believe it to be true? Or do we believe it was a fraud? They actually weren't given an opportunity. What do you think? This cuts at the heart of this idea that God doesn't know people's choices before they make them. If they were really given a choice and God didn't know what they were going to do until they made their choice, why wasn't Noah building more arcs? 
God did know. He gave them a free choice, but he knew their choice, so he wasn't going to have them build more arcs because there was no need for them. I think God has foreknowledge, but he still gives us free choice. I like your other explanation just as well, or maybe better, that even if they hadn't made the right decision, they could still be put to sleep and rise again with the righteous. But they believed not the preaching of Noah. They mocked at his warnings and ridiculed the building of the immense vessel on dry land. Noah's efforts to reform his fellow men did not succeed. But for more than 100 years, he persevered in his efforts to turn men to repentance and to God. Imagine preaching for 120 years and not having one convert. Now, I could tell you, it would be very discouraging to come to this class every week and have it be empty. <laughs> really, it would be very discouraging every week, every week. I don't, I, I, it would be very hard to keep preaching. Now, fortunately, he had a building project that kept him busy too. Yes. The period of their probation was drawing near to its close. The unbelieving, scoffing inhabitants of the world were to have a special sign of God's divine power. What do you think? Angels were sent to collect from the forest and the fields the beasts which God had created. Angels went before these animals, and they followed two and two, male and female, and clean beasts by sevens. These beasts, from the most ferocious down to the most gentle and harmless, peacefully and solemnly marched into the ark. The sky seemed clouded with birds of every description. They came flying to the ark, two by two, male and female, and the clean birds by seven. The world looked on with wonder, some with fear, but they had become so hardened by rebellion that this most signal manifestation of God's power had but a momentary influence on them. Pause. Do you find it credible? Because this is the Bible. This is the Bible account right here. What happened? Do you find it credible or incredible? You're saying, nah, it's just, I can't believe it, that this type of thing would happen, that the wild animals of the, of the, of the forests and fields and, and all over the world came in an orderly fashion with a pound. You couldn't see the angels, as far as I can tell. They just were being led by angels, but you couldn't see them, so it looks like they're being led by themselves. And here they come. The lions don't attack the lambs. The, the bears don't attack the, the, uh, the goats and, and so forth and so on. They just march in together at, all at peace and that the world sees this and, they don't think, and it doesn't register. They, they just go, well, this is nothing. Is that hard for you to believe? If it is, then some of you are going, yeah, it's hard. I, can't, I, I, th- I think that would have sh- shaken some of them and woken them up. Then remember the night of Jesus' arrest. When they arrested Jesus, divinity flashed through humanity. Some of them, the guards fell down for a moment as if struck. Peter seizes the opportunity. He whacks off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus says, put away your sword. And in front of them all, he puts the ear back on. And they go, oh, you're a Lord? No. Bind him, let's go kill him. Seriously, guys, if we were, if you were to watch somebody pick up an ear, blood's just pumping out. You know how, how bad head wounds bleed? Head wounds bleed really bad. And he just puts it on, bleeding stops, it's just healed. I would have to take a step back and go, hold on, maybe I'm not going to be with this party over here. <laughs> but they didn't. They didn't. I think there's credible evidence that, in fact, when you've closed your mind to truth, you've hardened your heart against truth. Look at the story of Pharaoh, plague after plague after plague. He only submits under the pressure, but as soon as the pressure is removed, he hardens his heart again. I find it sad, but compelling. As the doom raced, race beheld the sun shining in its glory, and the earth clad in almost Eden beauty, they drove away their rising fears by boisterous merriment. How many people today when truth brings conviction, you've, you've maybe taken somebody to a 
a gospel presentation. You've had a Bible study with someone. Uh, maybe your own self at some time in your life. Conviction has come to bear on you. But you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to face it. How do you avoid the conviction? By amusement, partying, intoxication, television, video games, and other distractions. Isn't that what we do? We just busy ourselves with something that takes it out of our mind. By boisterous merriment, by their deeds of vi- and their and by their deeds of violence, everything was now ready for the closing of the ark. And this this is mind blowing. I didn't remember this, and and I don't. Uh, this is kind of an insight from this author. I don't remember seeing this in scripture either. But maybe, maybe I guess it is in scripture. It doesn't quite describe it this way in scripture though. <laughs> everything was now ready for the closing of the ark, which could not be done by Noah from within. An angel is seen by the scoffing multitude descending from heaven, clothed with brightness like the lightning. He closes the massive outer door and then takes his course upward to heaven again. Amazing. Now the Bible does talk an angel comes down and closes the door. So it's a little expanded here. A little bit more brilliant lightning. Boom, comes down. They see the incredible angelic being close the door and they still are not persuaded. Wow. And this actually in uh, Genesis 7, it says the Lord shut him in. Yeah. Might have been the angel of the Lord or Michael. But I, I was also thinking while you were talking about that, that the door was open till that very point. Anyone could have come in, just like the New Jerusalem, the doors open. Anyone can come in, but they don't. Okay. So I'm going to skip because of shortness of time. Now, thank you for those comments. That's exactly right. People, people don't come in when the door is open. So I want to skip down because it's kind of a long quote, but I want to get to this point. Notwithstanding the solemn exhibition they had witnessed of God's power, which was the animals and the angel, the multitude, um, they muttered, uh, let's see here. But upon the eighth day, the heavens gathered blackness. The muttering thunders, the vivid lightning flashing, began to terrify man and beast. The rain descended from the clouds above them. This was something they had never witnessed, and their hearts began to faint with fear. The beasts were roving about in the wild terror, and their discordant voices seemed to moan out their own destiny and the fate of man. The storm increased in violence until water seemed to come from heaven like mighty cataracts. The boundaries of rivers broke away. The waters rushed to the valleys. The fountains of the great deep were broken up. Jets of water burst upon the earth with incredible force, throwing massive rocks hundreds of feet into the air, and they would bury themselves deep into the earth. The people first beheld the destruction of the works of their hands, their their places of worship, whereupon they offered human sacrifices. The violence of the storm increased, and there were mingled with the warring of the elements, the wailings of the people and who had despised the authority of God. Think about what that means, the authority of God. I think it's coming up here. I want you to think about this. Trees, buildings, rocks, and earth were hurled in every direction. The terror of man and beast was beyond description. Even Satan himself, who was com- was compelled to uh, be amid the warring elements, feared for his own existence. Why? Pause there. Why? He didn't trust God. He didn't trust God, but what's happening? What's actually happening? If you were an observer, what's happening here? What's the process? Destruction of the world. The Holy Spirit's being removed from the earth. And design law is taking over. What is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? Or where is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth? The hearts of men. 
And thus, this is, this is a lesson for the end of time when more stuff begins to fall upon the earth. Will God force his way into the hearts of men? So what happens when people, by the billions and billions and billions, begin closing their hearts against the Spirit? The Spirit is slowly withdrawn, not because God doesn't want the Spirit to be here, but because the hearts of men close against the Spirit. Now, who is the... Now, understand, this is going to challenge your mind to think outside the box of imposed system of rules, back to the Creator who built reality. Who sustains the laws of nature? Gravity, energy, the, the, all the various parameters upon which nature functions. Who sustains it? God does. And so as God is withdrawing his hand, I see a process happening where Lucifer, Satan, who claims to be equal to God, claims to be the prince of this world, claims that this is his rightful heir, that God is actually loosening his grip, so to speak, over the the control panel, if you will, of the forces of nature. And Satan doesn't go, thank you, finally I can sit in the driver's seat of of this thing. Finally I can be in control. In fact, it terrifies him. Because he's never been the creator. He's never been able to sustain reality. He's never been able to hold nature together. Things fall apart without God's constant involvement in our lives and in our, in our creation. And this is what's happening. Nature on earth is crumbling. And it terrifies him. Satan had delighted to control so powerful a race and wished them to live to practice their abominations and increase their rebellion against the God of heaven, he uttered imprecations against God, charging him with injustice and cruelty. So God is not inflicting, as in using his power to, no, earth is very stable without God's environment, it's just wound up like a toy on its own. No, God sustains all the actual laws upon which all reality function. God is withdrawing his sustaining energy, and nature is collapsing. But Satan turns it around and says, God is doing this. He's the source of cruelty and punishment. Many of the people, like Satan, blaspheme God, and if they could carry out their rebellion, would have torn him from his throne of justice. Angels that excel in strength guided the ark and preserved it from harm. Every moment during the frightful storm of 40 days and 40 nights, the preservation of the ark was a miracle of almighty power. So, I found it quite compelling to reread that this week. Well, there's so many things in the lesson, and we're just so much out of time already. I want to talk about Abraham and about the refining process, um, about Abraham's tests, so to speak. Uh, th- those who oppose us say, here's God. He, he's he's got to test Abraham to, to, to see what Abraham's going to do. Uh, Abraham has denied him, and so forth and so on. This is, uh, I'll just read the quote, My Life Today, page 92. A refining, purifying process is going on among the people of God, and the Lord of hosts has sent his hand, set his hand to the work. This process is most trying to the soul, but it is necessary in order that defilement may be removed. Trials are essential in order that we may be brought close to our Heavenly Father in submission to His will, that we may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The Lord brings His children over the same ground again and again, increasing the pressure until perfect humility fills the mind and the character is transformed. Then they are victorious over self and in harmony with Christ and the Spirit of Heaven. The purification of God's people cannot be accomplished without suffering. He passes us from one fire to another, testing our true worth. Some people get very uncomfortable with this until you understand reality, design law stuff, people. Purification, here's the design law. Once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. You have a broken leg, you won't let anybody touch it, don't get near me, you will suffer in pain and disability from this point out. You let the orthopedic surgeon pin it, go to the physical therapist to recover it. There's pain in that process. 
but that leads to recovery, strength, healing. But once there is brokenness, there are no pain-free options. And what God wants to heal in us is not something as simple. You can say, well, God could just miraculously heal a bone. Yes, he could do that. But that's a design law example of, now we have to apply it to what he's trying to heal. What is God really wanting to heal? Your character. And God cannot heal your character without your active participation. You choosing to say no to your own self. Why can he not do that? Now God has the power to instantly, in any one of our brains, create a new character. He's, he's, he's God. He could do that. But the moment he does that with a divine act of, of power, you, the individual you are, cease to exist, and a new being stands in your place. It's not you anymore. The only way for you to exist and you to be restored to righteousness is for you to, in a love relationship with your Creator, choose to apply all that He's provided to your life, which will be a process of self-denial. Paul said, I die daily. It's a daily self-surrender in choosing to apply the prescription God has, has provided for us. And then this is a process of discomfort as we deny self, but it leads, just like that physical therapy after broken leg, to a time when we are actually free from those encumbrances. And we live in a place of peace and joy like we've never known before. And there are many examples in Scripture of people who've achieved this. We don't have time to go through those. Check the notes. But it requires our active participation. And I didn't get to Jacob and Esau. I wanted to talk about that. And then in Thursday's lesson, I wanted to just hit this point. The lesson leaves that one major thought in all these examples from Cain and Abel, the flood, Abraham's life, Jacob and Esau, and Joseph and his brothers. And that is the great controversy with humanity being in the terminal condition after Adam's sin, dead in our trespasses and sin, and in need of a Messiah to save and heal us. When you put that piece in, then every one of these stories, you see the background war between God and Satan being played out on planet Earth, where Satan is working to obstruct God's plan to heal and save. Why do you think Satan inspired Cain to kill Abel? Because Abel was the righteous one, and he wanted to obstruct the avenue through which Messiah would come. Let's kill this one. Stop Messiah from coming. Flood the entire world. Satan has almost got the entire world hardened against God. There's only one righteous man. God acts to keep open the avenue for Messiah. Abraham uh, was called by God to be the avenue, his family, the avenue for which Messiah would come. <laughs> Satan doesn't have to focus on the whole world now. He just has to destroy this one man and his family. And he does this by getting him to lie to Pharaoh, hoping Pharaoh will take action against him. He does this by getting him to take another woman so we can corrupt the whole plan. He does this by getting him to go to war to save Lot. I don't, I don't think this was accidental. I think he inspired those, those kings to kidnap Lot, gets Abraham to go to war. Why? Because he wants to get Abraham killed. He wants Abraham killed in this war before he can actually fulfill. This is a, a plot going on. Yet, and then Jacob and Esau tempts, tempts Jacob to do his own thing selfishly turn Esau against him so Esau will kill Jacob, close the avenue for Messiah. You see this happening over and over again. Of course, the seven brothers, do you think it's an accident that a famine came? If you read in the book of Job, you see that Satan has certain powers over the forces of nature. And I think he brought this famine in order to destroy this family, but God overruled all this corruption that Satan was doing and allowed things to happen so Joseph would be in a place to actually protect them from the famine because God can see down the road and outmaneuver him. I see this whole thing happening. It's fantastic when you see it. The question is, where are we today? Where are we fitting into this plan? Are we trusting God with things that look maybe bad in the moment, like being sold by your brothers into slavery, but God has a plan for those who trust him that he's going to overrule and bring something amazing out of it? 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are amazing. And I know you've seen from the beginning to the end of all of history. Each one of us in this room, you know by name. You know each of our strengths, our weaknesses. You have a plan for each one of us. Lord, we open our hearts to you and ask that you will search us and see the wicked way in us, as David prayed, and that you will create in us a new heart and right spirit. Take your design, your character, your law, and write it on the hearts and minds that we can be transformed. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And we can go out effectively discerning the right from the wrong, seeing the greater reality of your universe as it's being played out on the landscape of human history, that we can be effective witnesses at this time in human history to tell the true message that can break other people out of this corrupt system that holds them in such bondage of fear. We pray in your holy name and we thank you. Amen.